Uh, we're going to have our Bible readings now. Uh, before, we, before we read, I wonder if you'd just join me in a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a speaking God, uh, and we thank you for this, your precious word, which is a light unto our feet and lamp to our path. Uh, Father, we thank you too for your spirit, and we ask that, your, uh, that, that as we open your word this morning, uh, we pray that he would be with us uh, and that he would help us, enable us to know you better uh, and to be changed to better reflect your love. Amen. Uh, So the first reading is on page 185, uh, and it's from Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then we're going to continue on in Deuteronomy 26. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbour's house or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. We're going to continue reading chapter 26. When you have entered the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land that the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land that the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labour. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, And the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And you and all the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given you and your household. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and given it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless and the widow, according to all that you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. Unclean. Any of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it when I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel, and the land you have given us as you promised on oath to our forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and you will walk in his ways, that you will keep his decrees, commands and laws and that you will obey him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, 
his treasured possessions as he promised and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame and honour high above all the nations he has made and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome to Stephen's. My name's Phil. I'm one of the the ministers here. We've already prayed, so we can get uh, straight into this last passage in our time in Deuteronomy together. You'll see on your sheets, you've got an equation. I'm no mathematician, but according to the boffins who came up with it, that equation reveals the secret to human happiness. Finally, we've got it in front of us. Only problem is I haven't got a clue how to interpret it because I know nothing about maths. But uh, what really struck me was that when this equation was produced in the summer was the explanation that Professor Oswald gave on the BBC as he spoke about it. He said, if you want to know how happy I am, don't ask me my salary. Ask how my salary compares to other professors of my, or to my own salary in the past. It is the gap, whether positive or negative, that really matters. We are all creatures of comparisons. Or let me perform a thought experiment with you that's been done around the world in various ways at different times and always produces the same results. You've got a choice. You can live in one of two worlds. In world one, you earn £80,000 a year. And everybody else in the world earns £40,000 a year. In world two, you earn £150,000 a year. But everybody else earns £250,000. Which world would you rather live in? Survey after survey, place after place, people would prefer to live in the first world. Objectively poorer but comparatively richer than everybody around us. It's the reason uh, for the old joke, how much money does a man have to earn to be happy? Just a little bit more than his wife's sister's husband. (laughs) You see, we live our lives in comparison, I'll explain it to you afterwards if you, uh, we live our lives in comparison with other people. Uh, We're always trying to keep up with the Jones. What makes me happy is determined not just by what I want or what I need, but by what he has, what she has. We're so busy looking sideways that we often fail to live our lives looking up to God. But the 10th commandment says, do not covet anything in your neighbor's life, whether the family they have or the possessions or the house they live in. Don't covet Don't envy other people. Don't covet their salaries. Don't covet their possessions, their jobs, their houses, or even their family. Don't covet. Let's just uh, remind ourselves where we are. We're in this uh, last sermon in the book of Deuteronomy that we've been working our way slowly through. Deuteronomy comprises, as you'll know, three sermons that Moses preached to the people of Israel. God had rescued them from Egypt some years previously. But they'd rebelled against him, been faithless and grumbling, and so had spent 40 years wandering in the desert. But now they stand on the edge of Canaan, the edge of the promised land. And so Moses reminds them in this central section how to live as God's people when they go in and take possession of the land that he is giving them. 
The Old Testament laws can be a bit confusing to us, though. So let's just, um, as we get to the end of Deuteronomy, just remind ourselves of various different threads that we've seen throughout these uh, series of sermons. Now, perhaps the most fundamental thing to get clear in our heads when we think about the Old Testament law is that these are membership rules, not entry requirements. Or to put it another way, the Ten Commandments are train tracks. They're like train tracks. And we get in trouble because so often we turn the train tracks vertically and try to use them as a ladder to climb up to God. But we can no more climb up to God, get into his good books, make ourselves acceptable to him by keeping his law than a train could run vertically up a set of tracks. No, we're saved. We are made right with God by Jesus' death that pays for our sins, by his perfect life which is counted to us if we trust in him. And then God's laws are like train tracks. They help us to run fast and free, to enjoy the, the, the life that God wants us to live, to, to live a, a full and happy life in his world, knowing how best to enjoy uh, everything that the Creator has designed. They keep us on the right track and they keep us away from things which will dehumanize and destroy and harm us from sin. Okay. Uh, So the law doesn't save us, but it shows us the best way to live. Um, But how do all the different bits of the law fit together? Just very briefly, you'll see there um, printed three things. Firstly, the supreme principle is love. Jesus says in Matthew 22 that God's great desire, the supreme principle for you and me to live by, is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, our mind, our soul and our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the principle that should drive everything. That's why Romans 13.10 says, love fulfills the law. Okay then, the Ten Commandments, a level below that if you like, are ten concrete expressions of what it means to love the Lord our God. Which is why we should never take a tick box um, approach to them. Because they are, they're always meant to be an expression of our love. So I don't keep the seventh commandment just by not committing adultery. I fulfill the seventh commandment by not committing adultery and by cherishing and loving and looking after my wife. Okay, a level further down, what about all the sort of, the stuff about uh, mixed fabric, mildew and no eating bacon sandwiches? What do we do with that? Uh, that is case law. They work out in detail, what does it mean to love the Lord my God and to love people in these ten concrete directions? What does it mean to do those things if I'm an Israelite? If God's people are a nation state in an agricultural society living 1,500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ? What does it look like then? So that should make it clear, we don't apply these central chapters of Deuteronomy by doing exactly what they say. They were laws between God and Israel, and they were always meant to be temporary. They were always meant to be a temporary law, while God's people were a nation before Jesus Christ had come to forgive sins. But we can learn from the principles, because the principles still come from the same God whose character does not change. Uh, Before we get into the detail, though, of Deuteronomy 26, we do need to work out what coveting actually means. It's not a word we use often. Uh, The old word is the rather wonderful word, word concupiscence. 
That really helps us, doesn't it? Or to put it in modern language, it's a consuming desire for things I don't have, but other people do have. You see, the issue with the Tenth Commandment is not desire for things. It is over-desire, a controlling desire, an enslaving desire. When I start to feel it is wrong that she has it and I don't, a desire that just consumes me. You know, my, my iPhone 5 works just fine, to be honest. I'm very happy with it. I won't be in a few weeks' time. Why? Because the iPhone 6 will come out then. And I will see somebody with one of those, with its shiny new screen. At which point, my iPhone 5 is just not good enough anymore. I, no, I don't want, I need one of those iPhone 6s. I get along fine on my salary. It's great. It's, you know, everything to stretch always in London. But I get along fine until I find that my colleague has got a raise. My salary is never going to be enough now, is it? And coveting is this toxic cycle where I see what the Joneses have and see becomes want and want becomes need and then I do whatever it takes to get. And then the new salary, the new house, the new car, the new holiday or whatever else becomes my base level for happiness. The things I just need to get by. But that happiness only lasts for a moment, doesn't it? before my greedy eyes latch onto something else that I have to have. And we think that when we get the thing we want, we'll be happy. But that is to misunderstand the nature of desire and coveting. Because our our hearts don't want the thing, our hearts are driven by the desire for more. So I'll I'll no more be happy by getting that thing that I want that I think will make me happy than a fire will be satisfied if I just give it a bit more petrol and then it will be happy and it will die down. We mustn't be stupid with our hearts. The more we get, the more we feed the monster. And there is something else that's toxic about coveting and that is that it leads us not just to want the stuff that other people have but to resent eventually the people who have the stuff that I want. Coveting will sour all our relationships. We'll find it harder and harder to be real friends with people who have things I want if we allow ourselves to be driven by the desire for the things they have. It kills the love that we should have for other people. And lastly, of course, coveting stops us enjoying the life we do have because We're always comparing what I have with others, and it never works well. Uh, You see it uh, when we indulge in what a friend of mine calls property porn. Uh, You know, uh, gazing in the estate agent's windows. And have you noticed something we never do? We never look in the estate agent's window at a smaller, cheaper flat or house and think, I'm so grateful I live where I do rather than there. It's always at a bigger one, a nicer one a pricier one. We never compare down, we always compare up. And that makes us miserable, unhappy, unable to enjoy what we have now. You see, this takes us to one of the most fundamental things about the law of God. God warns us for our good. We think God's laws are negative and limiting, that they crush the freedom and the joy from life, but actually God's laws are life-giving understood in the right way. 
They keep us away from the sins that harm and destroy and rob us of joy. They keep us running fast and free in God's life-giving ways. See, coveting is toxic. It robs our hearts of joy. It corrodes us as people. It shrivels our love. It turns us away from God and people and fixes us on stuff. It makes us dissatisfied with what we do have. And it makes me think God is not very good for what I don't have. It makes us resentful and miserable where God longs that we would be joyful and generous. And in Deuteronomy 26, we see not just a pattern of life that is the opposite of coveting, but also we see some keys that will help cure our hearts from coveting, turn us away from coveting. Okay, so the first thing is, be thankful to God for all you have. Look with me at verses 1 to 11 in chapter 26. That's on page 203, page 203, chapter 26 of Deuteronomy. When you've entered the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land that the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our forefathers to give us. The priest will take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. And you and the Levites and the aliens among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given. So that doesn't distract us as we, as we work our way into it. Now what's going on here? I, I don't think this is a one-off. I think this is a once-a-year ceremony. So once a year at harvest time, you trek over to Jerusalem with your donkey laden down with whatever it is your land had produced. Uh, apples, olives, grain, livestock. A bit harder to stack on the donkey. I presume they would have walked behind, but anyway. And once there, you'd head up the hill to the temple with everybody else in Jerusalem. And you would stand before the priest for this ceremony where you'd say these words set out in Deuteronomy 26. And you would hand over to God your tithe, which uh, just means a tenth. It's all a bit foreign to us. Uh, There is no temple anymore. There are no priests anymore. And none of us here are farmers, to the best of my knowledge. But the principles are actually very easy for us to access and to put into practice. First, the offering to God, do you see, comes from the first fruits. That is, you didn't wait to see what's left over and give it to God. You gave him from the very first part of the harvest that your land produced. Notice too, it is a celebration. Verse 11 talks explicitly about a a, a rejoicing that takes place with everybody gathered and joining in. This is a joyful ceremony, not a heavy duty. 
We're not told how the rejoicing happened, whether they dance a jig or sing songs or whoop for delight, but they rejoiced, whatever was the culturally appropriate expression of joy for them. Now, most of us, um, if we give here to church, we give by direct debit. Uh, one of the reasons there's not big collection boxes out is that we, we don't want visitors, if you're here visiting, we don't want your money. Uh, we want the regulars here who uh, are thankful for the work of God in their lives to contribute to the work of his church. And giving by direct debit, the treasurer will smile, makes his life a whole lot easier. So we're very happy about that. There is only one real downside to giving by direct debit, uh, and that is that it just happens invisibly, automatically. Money pings out of your account, goes into the church one. There's no celebration or ceremony to it. And healthy giving in the Bible is a joyful act. Now, traditionally, in rural churches, you'd have a harvest service in the autumn. If you've ever been there, you'll know the sort of thing I mean. There's this great celebration, and the church is filled with traditional English produce. There, At the front, there are hay bales and sheaves of wheat and apples and potatoes and tin peaches and kumquats and microwave curries and all other traditional English things. And we sing, uh, we plough the fields and scatter in our best yokel accents. It's great fun. It's almost worth visiting the countryside just to do it once in your life. It would feel a bit weird to do it here in the middle of a city, let's be honest. And we must avoid the religiosity that Jesus hated. There's something very odd. There were, when we shared a church building, um, when I was part of a church plant, we would come in after a church and the the last people to leave would be the, the pastor and the elders. And as I walked in, they would always be reviewing the giving of who'd given what that week because people had to present their checks publicly. There's something unhealthy about that culture. We don't want that. But as individuals, as families, and also as a church, we ought to think, how can we maximize our joy? How can we make our giving as much of a celebration as possible? See, there are, there are lots of reasons to give to God's work at church. There are lots of motivations in the Bible, but one that we don't often think of is that you rob yourself of joy if you don't get involved in giving. Don't rob yourself of the joy of, of giving back to the Lord. But what is it that drives joyful giving? What unlocks our hearts so that we want to give? I think the key, again, is in these verses. Look back a little bit more closely. Do you see what is repeated? What phrase or word appears three times at the start and three times at the end? That is the key to the unlocking of joyful giving. Verses 1 to 4, 5 to 11, three times. Verse 1, that the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 2, the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 3, swore to our forefathers to give us. Verse 9, he brought us to this place and gave us this land. Verse 10, I now bring the first fruits of the soil that you, O Lord, have given me. Verse 11, rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. We give in response to the fact that God has given everything that we have to us. We're in September now, which means that Christmas decorations will be up in John Lewis by the end of the week. 
And I guess all the different families here will have their own traditions for Christmas. But usually, once kids get to a certain age, uh, they start wanting to give Christmas presents to the parents. But we all know where the money comes from. Mum and Dad. The bank of Mum and Dad. So when little Shaniqua gives a, a gift to Mum, Mum has provided the money for Shaniqua to buy the gift. And it is like that with you and me when we fill out a direct debit form for church. God loves that we want to give to his work. It makes him smile. It really does. But let's be clear where the money comes from. We're giving to God money that God has given to us in the first place. See, God gave you your job, your salary. God gave us the intellect, the education, the opportunities that enable us to to work and to earn. Everything that you and I have ultimately is a gift from God. Now, this ceremony is laid down in one to four, the, the basics of it. You go to Jerusalem, you present your tithe, your tenth to God. But five to 11 go into a bit more detail. They show a little bit more of what happens in the ceremony. And you'll see that the wording of what you say is very important. It is all about remembering, which, if you like, is just digging a bit deeper into this concept of God giving to us. So you'll see in verses 5 to 11, firstly, Moses calls on them to remember the Exodus. Verse 5, then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. That's um, Jacob, Father Jacob. And he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians ill-treated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice, saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Look back, he says, at what you've been saved from. Eventually, the Egyptians put Joseph's descendants, the Israelites, to hard labor. They put them in chains and started to work them to death to wipe them out. It was genocide, pure and simple. They were enslaved by the most powerful nation on earth, a weak people without arms or hope. But God smashed mighty Pharaoh and God rescued his people from death in Egypt. Now, to the best of my knowledge, as I look out, I don't think anyone here has been rescued from slavery in Egypt, even though one or two have come from Egypt. But if you call yourself a Christian here this morning, you'll know that all people, including us, have been enslaved by a far more tyrannical power than any human despot the sinful desires of our own hearts. And because of that, our destiny, all of our destinies, is eternal death cut off from God. But God has rescued us in our own and greater exodus. When the Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven, God in human flesh, and died on a cross to take the punishment, to die our death, He rescued us from the death that we deserve. And when he rose to life and sent his Holy Spirit, he gives us new life that breaks this slavery to sinful desires. We have been rescued. We have have our own exodus to look back upon. And then verses 9 to 10, the people aren't just to look back to the exodus as if uh, God just took the Israelites out of slavery. He did more than that. He took them out of slavery in Egypt and then he took them into the promised land. As for you and me, we're still journeying 
our promised land where we will live physically with God, enjoying all of his blessings for all of eternity in his physical remade paradise kingdom. That we can't see or touch or enjoy until the Lord Jesus returns. But it is true that in the meantime, every physical blessing that you and I have and enjoy, every one of them, is a gift from God. Don't lose sight of that. Remember all God has done for you in the physical blessings of this life and supremely in his salvation at the cross. Now we do this uh, as a church when we sing songs together that celebrate God's goodness. And we do it particularly when we share communion, the meal that Jesus gave us as a, a remembrance, a memory, a celebration of his death and resurrection that take us out of the kingdom of darkness and that take us forward to his kingdom of blessing and prosperity and beauty when he returns. Now, I am a world-class grumbler. There's not a lot I'm world-class at, but I am a world-class grumbler. If it becomes a category in the Olympics, you are looking at a future gold medalist. If it was a spiritual gift, you'd be looking at one of the holiest men alive. It's not. One thing, though, that really helped me was that for a year or two, I and a friend uh, had this deal where we would send each other an email every month at the end of the month. And in the email, we had to set out absolutely everything we could think of that we were thankful for. Uh, From massive things like a friend turning back to the Lord Jesus who'd wandered away, to trivial things like Arsenal beating Man U, which tells you how long ago it was (laughs) that I did this. Uh, It was a sort of regular discipline. And this regular discipline of remembering God's goodness really helped me. It made me much more aware of what God had given to me and much less aware, if I'm honest, of what I didn't have and thought I needed. Uh, Studying this passage this week has made me think I need to repent and start doing that again to get back into the habit of once a month at least writing down everything I can think of that God has given me and that I want to thank him for. Because joyful giving drives a covetous spirit out of my heart. And what drives joyful giving is a deep-rooted understanding that everything I have is a gift from God and that God has been incredibly good to all of us. Well, part two, be generous to others who have less. So part two of killing covetousness is learning to be generous. And now these verses refer back to Deuteronomy 14, 28 to 29. Um, as it, which uh, talk initially about this, this gift that needs to be given. Look at verse 12 of chapter 26. When you've finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, uh, which is talked about firstly in Deuteronomy 14, when you've done that, the year of tithe, you shall give it, this special tithe, to the Levite, the alien, that's the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Then say to the Lord your God, I have removed from my house the sacred portion and given it to the Levite, the alien and the fatherless and the widow, according to all you commanded. I have not turned aside from your commands, nor have I forgotten any of them. I have not eaten of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you've given us as you promised on oath to our forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, uh, we don't have time to 
to dig into detail about everything that's going on there. But basically, once every three years, an extra tithe, an extra 10%, would be given by everybody to provide for the poor and needy in society, like widows and orphans and immigrants. Which is to say, God cares for the poor. God cares for those who fall between the cracks in our society. Now, we're used to the state looking after the needy, but the reason our state looks after the needy is because Christian men and women lobbied hard in the past and said that's what a society should be like. Even now, though, we see here that God expects his people to show a practical concern for those who are in need. Refugees, immigrants, single mothers, kids stuck in foster care. You and I having been rescued from our spiritual poverty by God, should show particular concern for those who are in physical destitution in this world. It's interesting, in verses 14 to 15, the people recognize that God will only bless the physical nation of Israel if they are kind and compassionate to the poor. Do you see that? I have not eaten of the sacred portion while I was in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor have I offered any of it to the dead. In other words, I haven't um, made my offering part of a pagan ceremony, pagan sacrifice. I have obeyed the Lord my God. I have done everything you commanded me. So look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you've given us as you promised on oath to our forefathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. We need to be very, very careful about applying to ourselves exactly verses that are for the physical nation of Israel when when they're a nation state. But at the very, very least, it would be odd if I ask God, hear my prayers, provide for me if I am deaf to the cries of the needy in my society. The trafficked sex workers in Mayfair, the illegal immigrant fruit pickers in Norfolk, or the junior staff in my office who don't get paid enough to really live on. It would be odd if I expect God to listen to my prayers when I am so deaf to the cries of others. And the truth is that nothing kills a covetous heart more than a thankfulness which is combined with generosity. A generosity that spends a little less time looking at those who have more than me and wishing I had what they have, and a little bit more time looking at those who have less than me and wondering what I can share with them. Okay, let's uh, look very briefly as we close at verses 16 uh, to 19. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You've declared this day that the Lord is your God and you will walk in his ways, that you will keep his decrees, commands and laws, and that you will obey him. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He's declared that he will set you in praise, fame and honor high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. 
Now these verses are a conclusion to everything that Moses has had to say about the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. They are a, a solemn vow and covenant. They're, they're sort of like a renewal of a marriage ceremony. If a husband and wife have been estranged and they want to have a, a ceremony renewing their marriage vows, it's almost what's going on here after their 40 years of wandering in the desert because of their disobedience. They renew their covenant that they promise they will turn back to, to following God. Now, we don't even have time to scratch the surface of these verses. But there is one particular phrase in here which impacts massively on whether or not our hearts will be able to obey the Tenth Commandment and resist the urge to covet what others have. That Whether we will live our lives envying the houses, the cars, the holidays, the jobs, the spouses, the children of other people or whether we will live our lives loving and serving and giving. And that is this little phrase that appears in verse 18. Do you see how God describes his people there? The Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession. All the world is God's. All the people belong to God. He's the creator of every atom that exists. Everything belongs to him. But the Israelites then, and we, if we trust in the Lord Jesus now, are God's people in a special way. We enjoy not just God our creator, but God, as the children were learning earlier, our father. Of being his, not just his possession, but his treasured possession. What's your most treasured possession? The thing you would grab if the house was burning down. Age of four, it was my teddy bear. Very clear. I'd have let my brother in his bed. Wouldn't have been too worried. Teddy bear was coming with me out of the house. I like to think I've grown up since there. Teddy bear's now in a cupboard. I know which cupboard, but safely in a cupboard. (laughs) I'm not sure there's a physical thing anymore. I guess what matters most to me in this world, if the house was burning, was my wife. I'd want to get her out. What do you think God's answer to that question is? What is God's most treasured possession? It is you. It is us, his people. He was willing to give up the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 8.32, the most precious thing in existence for our redemption. And he describes us, therefore, his people, as his treasured possession. And the unfulfilled longings that lead our hearts to covet possessions and lives of others. The thing that kills that burning desire is a knowledge, a confidence, a deep-seated conviction that we are God's treasured possession, that he loves us, and that he is very, very good to us. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? When I get that that is how God views me, when I get that that's how generous God is towards me, then I'll learn that he is equally good in what he has given me and what he has decided not to give me. He knows our needs and desires. He knows the selfishness of our hearts. He is a father who doesn't spoil. There are times he doesn't give us what we desperately want. And at those times, we need to know God looks on us as his treasured possession. 
He's willing to give his own son, the Lord Jesus, to die for us. When he doesn't give me what I want, then it can't be that he's not good, he's not generous, he's not bothered. It must be he knows best. And he knows it's not for me or not for now. If I have that confidence about God, then maybe I can learn to be a little less covetous of what others have and a little more satisfied that God knows and God will give all that I really need. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that not only are you our greatest treasure, the answer to the longings of our hearts, but that remarkably we are your treasured possession. We pray that you would give us that confidence that you do treasure and delight in us. And therefore we pray that we would not be so covetous of what others have, but rather we would be confident that our generous Father gives all and abundantly well. And therefore we have what we need. And so we pray that we would learn to be thankful for what we have and generous to those who have less. We pray this for the joy that we will get, but also that we might honour you in our lives. Amen.